Jealousy can become a habit. Envy can become a habit, right? This false notion that you could, you know, verbally abuse yourself without feeling abused, it's, it's complete nonsense. And so you could see it as an act of service to others to look after yourself. So if you really want to help other people, start off with making sure that you... So what ends up happening is we treat ourselves like enemies. Welcome to How to Be an Adult, a podcast created by the practitioners at the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada. This show helps people like you who've inadvertently become adults and don't know what to do about it. I'm Luke Chow. And I'm Pascal Langdale. Now, whether you're 18 or 80, we are doing this podcast in order to give to you the trail guide to adulthood that you never really got when you reached the age of majority. We put out this podcast publicly so that we can normalize self-respect and self-esteem. Today's episode talks about how to care for your mind and how to care for your emotions, which as an adult are yours to care for. In the current world of CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, or even going back thousands of years to the Stoics, there are certain themes that come up again and again, certain perspectives about how to deal with your emotions and what they are and what they're for, that chime very well with us and, in fact, uh, the perspectives that we work with. I figure that if 2,000 or 2,500 years ago, the ancients figured out principles during you know, the much harsher, more violent ancient times, and they still resonate. And then modern psychologists have also figured out that the same principles apply. Then there's probably relevance to anyone listening to this podcast, no matter where in the world they are. Both CPT and Stoicism suggest that emotions are not just to be observed and felt and accepted. Stoicism and CPT suggest additionally that our thoughts have some impact on how we feel, just like the parent has some impact on how the baby feels. So this kind of contradicts the popular view that our feelings are sacred and we are to observe them as opposed to even try to change them. Or the alternative, which is that emotions are something which are to be totally controlled, suppressed and manipulated. I think a lot of people read or miss comprehend stoicism mm. as you know keeping a stiff upper lip and repressing your emotions but it, it isn't such a thing so one way of thinking about it perhaps is to say that well emotions a they have a role that when you have an emotion it's not the entire truth but it's an aspect of a truth that any strong negative emotion i would argue simply lacks context and information because I can look at a glass of water and say it's half full, or I can say that it's half empty, or I can say it's water that adapts to the shape that it's in. There are multiple ways of perceiving an object or a situation. The way that our emotions work, we can give them too much credit, or we can give them too little credit. The same, they, they did this, you know, you know this story, and I'm sure some people out there already know this one, which is they did a test where they had three wine bottles, and they had an expensive wine, a regular wine, and a really cheap wine, right? And they, they labeled them with the um, how much they cost, basically. And they brought people in. So you've got to taste each of these wines, and you've got to give them a rating, right? So the first time they do it, and all the bottles are lined up correctly with their correct amount. And sure enough, you know, people had opinions, and the way they tasted their wine aligned with the cost. But then they did the test again, where they swapped it around, where they had the cheapest bottle being, uh, you know, labeled as the most expensive. And the most expensive bottle being labeled as the cheapest, and they brought people in again, and sure enough, people tasted the cheap wine, and some of them even went, ah, oh, that's disgusting. 
because their expectation was linked to the dollar cost. Their thoughts therefore affected how they felt and their reaction and the behavior to something that, you know, minutes ago had been tasted and validated and had been validated by experts as being a very fine wine. What I'm taking from what you've shared is that emotions are manipulable. Yes. Which means that you can't always take them at face value. You shouldn't just go with your feelings. If you think of something difficult or challenging that you'd like to do, right? So right now, I'm going to have you hold in your mind some kind of work or social challenge that would be difficult, and I want you to tell yourself that you can do it, right? So hold that thing in mind. Tell yourself you can do it. Probably you're going to breathe more deeply. Probably you're going to sit up a bit more straight. Probably you're going to feel more of a sense of capability. Now, hold the same thing in mind, right? The same work or social challenge and tell yourself you can't do it. Probably you're going to shrink a little. Probably your breathing becomes a bit more tense simply because of the thought about that thing. It's not the thing in itself that causes you to sit up straighter or to shrink. It's your assessment of whether you can do it or can't do it. So this is why, you know, we tell kids you can do it. It's not to mollycoddle them. It's because it's actually good thinking that produces better outcomes when you tell yourself you can. They've shown this in in sports situations. If you have, if you have negative thoughts and think, oh, it's been a disaster so far, I'm not going to win, I wish I could win, all, all the sort of the maelstrom of sports thinking. If you allow that to come in, it is much, much more likely that you will fail the shot, you won't achieve the goal, you won't do the thing, than if you had neutral thoughts. And the positive thoughts uh, don't have quite such an equal weight so far as definitely guaranteeing you're going to achieve the goal. Because, of course, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of other stuff on the other side of I can, which that positive mindset allows you to deal better with. However, it doesn't necessarily guarantee it. What is guaranteed is if you have a negative outlook, it's much, much more likely that it will negatively affect whatever it is that you're doing, or even the way that you're relating to people, or any activity, in fact. Well, one way or another, you're affecting how you feel in your body. So if you're going to affect how you feel in the body one way or another, why make a detrimental impact on the way you feel when you can just as easily make a positive impact on how you feel? So many of our listeners are walking around in this world and until someone points it out to them, they actually believe they could think whatever they like in their heads without consequences to how they feel in the body. Now, as a hypnotherapist, you realize very quickly that the thoughts in your head make a material impact on how you feel in your body. If your thoughts are self-loving and self-respecting, you're going to feel a whole lot better on a day-to-day basis than if your thoughts about yourself are self-loathing and self self-denigrating. This false notion that your mind is completely independent of of your body such that you could, you know, verbally abuse yourself without feeling abused, it's it's complete nonsense. So when we have strong emotions, like uh, say I'm scrolling through social media and, (laughs) and I come across something, I see somebody I know doing something exceptional and for whatever reasons, at that point in that day, I'm not my best self. And I look at it and I sort of go, oh, man, how is it possible that this person could do that? Why can't I do that? <laughs> right? So the beginnings of the green eyes of, of envy and jealousy. And so this is why I'm saying that sometimes strong emotions require context in order to be interpreted better. 
So if I then enlarge that context, well, okay, well, what I don't know is the context of the family, the context of the work, how much work did it, how many years did it take to get to that point, who they had to know, the, the element of chance. There's all these things that I just don't know. And so therefore, if I did, then I would perhaps say, forgive myself a little for not being that person at that time with those opportunities and that backstory, mm-hmm. right? And I think what jealousy and envy to some degree have is highlighting a value or something that you feel you are missing out or you haven't done, accomplished, that you value. And it's really interesting because jealousy can become a habit. Envy can become a habit, right? And you can even be instructed in your youth to think that envy is necessary or that that this judgment is necessary. But it's really interesting because you can turn around and kind of go, okay, what do I value? Well, I value the fact that this person has transcended their original job and are doing something they really enjoy with their life. So what am I doing? Do, what, what part of that is the thing that I aspire to? And if I go, well, okay, I'm, I'm falling down on the transcending my current job. Well, then I've got power. Then I've got agency. Then I can say, well, okay, what do I need to do? And so it's, it's not that jealousy is bad or envy is bad in and of itself. It's A, that you believe that it's the only truth, and then you reflect it back on yourself and you punish yourself for it. Or you say, okay, well, it's not the only truth. It's a flag for something that I'm trying to tell myself. What I'm hearing you say is that if you only feel jealous and that's the end of it, then you kind of stew in the jealousy. Mm -hmm. But if you feel jealous as the first step towards self-improvement, then it doesn't end with you stewing in jealousy. It ends with you perhaps identifying your values and then striving to be a better person yourself so that the future you might have more of what you'd seen on social media. I made a post speaking of social media, and I think I titled it, Emulate, Don't Envy the Successful. Because we each have a choice when we see someone with like a better career, you know, a more loving partner, better behaved dog. We have the choice between emulating the qualities that led them to have the better career, the more loving partner, the better behaved dog, or we could just kind of stew in our envy, which is fruitless and which I would suggest is a negative sum game. So the question is, well, now we understand that the mind and the body are an integrated thing, that whatever your whatever you think and your emotions will affect your body, that you have agency over your emotions and you can use them for positive change rather than stewing in your own jealousy and and nihilism, which is obviously not a good way to live. What would be one mental approach to treating yourself well, bearing all that in mind? Well, we know exactly how to treat a friend, right? Even if we just met the person, we know there are certain things we do say, there are certain things we don't say. Too often we decline the same courtesy of of ourselves. So what ends up happening is we treat ourselves like enemies. And of course, then, we don't feel so great as a consequence. But the very same judgment and reasoning and conscience that has you speak to friends in a consistently beneficial manner can help you speak to yourself in a consistently beneficial manner. And I'd like to point out that this is unhypocritical. Mm-hmm. Too often we feel like if we love and respect and care for ourselves that we're being selfish, we're being hypocritical. It's no such thing if you're already a pro-social person. It is unhypocritical if your inner dialogue sounds like your outer 
dialogue. Anyone who is walking around feeling unloved does not have some of their most fundamental needs met. Mm. And just like if you walk around and you're dehydrated and malnourished, you're not going to be at your best. Mm -hmm. If you walk around and you're feeling unloved and disrespected because you neglect your self-love and your self-respect, then it's hard to be at your very best. Mm. So in prior episodes, we've talked about approaching others with a cup that's full. So the first step in that is to fill up your own cup until it's overflowing, and then you can so much more easily give to others. So one of the overarching themes in today's episode is going to be the pursuit of positive sum or net positive outcomes. If that person's happy, it doesn't obligate me to be miserable. That's positive sum thinking. Mm -hmm. But if that person's happy, therefore I'm going to be a resentful, envious person. That's zero sum thinking. It's so detrimental when someone walks around feeling like if someone else is happy, it robs you of joy. Because it can just as easily be that when someone else is happy, their happiness wears off on you. It is, in a way, a choice how you interpret someone else's happiness. Or the feeling of envy similarly comes in part from this zero-sum mentality that suggests that, well, if someone else has that career, then they've taken the slot that could rightfully be yours. So you could see it as an act of service to others, to look after yourself. So if you really want to help other people, start off with making sure that you have uh, good self-esteem, good self-respect, you treat yourself well, you look after yourself and treat yourself as, as well as a friend might, as well as somebody who really cared about you might. Maslow, Abraham Maslow, the humanist psychologist who developed his hierarchy of needs, I would suggest has identified many of the needs that every human being has. I remember learning about Maslow's hierarchy in grade 10, and I raised a hand, and I challenged the teacher. So when Abraham Maslow was introduced and his hierarchy of needs was introduced, obviously one of the tiers is your social needs. So respect, esteem, love, right? That, you know, according to Maslow's hierarchy, we all need to be esteemed by our peers and loved by our friends and loved by our neighbors. And without it, we suffer. And we have to kind of have these needs met before we reach, finally, self-actualization. So the, the question I raised, which I don't think I've ever heard a very satisfactory answer for, is what about the lone monk living on the mountaintop who we might say is self-actualized, but they are not being loved by friends or neighbors since they're literally just a lone monk living on a mountaintop. Doesn't that, you know, compromise Maslow's theory? Fast forward many years, I, I feel like I can offer an answer to that challenge. And it's that Maslow did identify correctly that love and esteem and respect are needs. The bit that he might not have said or not have said loudly enough is that one's own self-love, one's own self-respect, one's own self-esteem fulfills the need. So he wasn't wrong in identifying that love and respect and esteem are needs. But these needs do not necessarily, in my view, have to be fulfilled socially. If one is the monk on the mountaintop, if one lives, you know, in this modern industrial world and too often we run home and we crash on the couch after work only to do it again the next day, if, if self-love and self-respect and self-esteem 
are what we can have consistently, and getting these needs met by others is too inconsistent, then let's not discount our self-love and our self-respect and our self-esteem. Even the monk, though, we can kind of imagine he or she had their monk brothers or sisters to kind of show them how to meditate, to show them how to connect with their own feelings of loving kindness. So I think that those kinds of lessons earlier in, in life will have a lasting impact later in life such that, you know, it's not like the monk was born, you know, able to be peaceful on a, on a mountaintop. The, the monk having had enough positive regard from others, the monk having had enough guidance from others can eventually reach a point where he or she could be at the peak of the mountain meditating amidst the trees and, and still be happy. Um, in the modern world, you know, we don't really consult with religious figures for happiness and life guidance, at least not as much as human beings used to. Uh, we often instead confer with psychotherapists for life guidance and for advice for how to be happy. Too often therapists say that, you know, that they don't really give advice, but they'll kind of encourage you to search inwardly. For better or for worse, therapy sometimes gets slagged for being just for the wealthy, but that doesn't mean that everyone who can't afford a therapist is going to be out in the cold. That's where unconditional positive regard, which is such a huge part of especially humanistic schools of psychotherapy. That's where it can be something that, that, that you give to yourself. So part of the reason I think therapy actually makes people feel better is you can talk about whatever shameful, scary thoughts you have in your head, and you're shown unconditional positive regard. But as an adult, your opinions are adult opinions. Your perspectives are adult perspectives. And I would suggest that we human beings have the self-reflective capacity to not just love ourselves and to esteem ourselves, but to give ourselves unconditional positive regard of a similar nature to what therapists give professionally. And I think some of my therapist friends would agree with me when I say that part of the role of therapy is to have your client eventually give themselves the same unconditional positive regard that the therapist gives them, almost like they had good parents who knew what they were doing when they were a child. Which is not to say that you are free from responsibility or accountability. It's simply that with responsibility and accountability, it doesn't make you bad. Right. So I'll give yeah. you an example of what the inner dialogue might sound yeah. like. So very often, if we make a mistake we might say to ourselves, oh, I'm such a screw up. I never get anything right. So that is without unconditional positive regard. Now, let's say you make the same error and you have unconditional positive regard. You aren't really thinking, I'm going to keep screwing up for the mm -hmm. rest of my life and I can't do anything about mm -hmm. it. You're probably going to think, well, you know, next time I'm going to be a bit more careful, mm -hmm. and next time I'm going to do things differently. Mm -hmm. If we apply the principle of talking to yourself like a friend, mm -hmm. right? So let's say a friend makes some kind of error or faux pas in front of us, 
if we're a good friend, we aren't really gonna just let it go yeah. completely. You suck. And we're not gonna we're not gonna <laughs> criticize them like that. We might just pull them aside and quietly say, you know, I know you could do better than that. Mm-hmm. So then next time, this way, please. Yeah. And you still love them. So it doesn't get you off the hook to have unconditional positive regard, just like your friends are not off the hook just because you love them. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly, in my experience of raising children, you're doing that an awful lot. Your, your children can be doing something which is, woof. Um, but but you're not you're not going to hate them. You hate the behaviour because it's not doing anybody any good or them or whatever. But even in those those uh, those worst moments, it works very well if you turn around and say, even though this is happening. It's not going to change the fact that I love you. Even though I'm annoyed about the behavior, it's not going to change the fact that I love you. Even for people who've never had a child before, Mm. but who have had a cat or a dog before, if they barf (laughs) on the rug, you know, know, if you have a heart at all, you're not getting rid of the animal. If they barf on the rug, Mm -hmm. you love the animal and you just might redirect them to like the hardwood part of your living Mm. room the next time they start to barf. Or you feed them different food or you just take them to the vet if they Mm -hmm. do it often enough. You know, you, you could do what you can to correct the behavior and still have pure love Mm. for the animal. So if we can do this for a dog, Mm. then we can definitely do it for ourselves. So if we can do it for a dog, then we can, as you say, definitely do it for ourselves. And we do it because there is a fundamental uh, innate worth that every human being has. To start off with, just the chance of you, Luke, being here now... Genetically speaking, it's one in 400 trillion chance. Another thing is, so far as we know, there's no other beings in the universe that are like humans in that we can manipulate tools, we can make plans and manipulate the future to some degree. Uh, We have appreciation of our own mortality. And just those facts alone make you pretty unique. Even if you're like many other human beings, however many billions there are, that's still an extraordinary thing in and of itself. But if I was to say, well, okay, science, put that to the side for a moment. What other ways can we accept that humans have innate worth? Well, a first step is to count yourself among living beings so that you don't treat yourself worse than a dog, worse than a tree, worse than a cat. Too often we do treat ourselves as like we're things that could be neglected or abused without consequence. Or like you're a machine. Or like a machine with only value insofar as we're meeting certain specifications and mm-hmm. functioning to a certain level. But you'd be incorrectly categorized as a machine or a robot or a computer. You'd be correctly categorized among the cats and the dogs and the mm-hmm. trees, right? And additionally, you'd be correctly categorized among your kids, among your partner, mm-hmm. among your friends, among your neighbors, among your favorite writers and musicians and artists, because you're human. One thing that I think compromises a lot of people's sense of self-worth is the idea that one must be perfect or else one is worthless. There's this black and white, all or nothing thinking as though we're like like a strawberry and once it's got a bit of mold on it, we have to toss it and there's no more commercial value left. That's a weird example, but we often treat ourselves like we're either worthy because we're perfect and we meet everyone's approval or we are worthless as though there are no shades in between but there are definitely a lot of shades and and it can be extraordinarily self-defeating it can be really overwhelming if you allow that perspective to take over it's like all right 
I can't even make the first step. I can't even, because I'll, I'll never reach that height. So there's no point in trying. And so therefore you start looking outside for validation. You start looking outside for reasons why you might be feeling this way. You start looking outside for solutions to how you feel. And that can be, of course, things like alcohol and drugs, of course. But you're looking in the wrong place to start off with. For, for all of my clients who they drink too much, mm -hmm. they smoke uh, at all, they, they use drugs and then regret it, they um, gamble too much, the answer, the, I hesitate to use this word, but almost the panacea for their emotional wounds is self-loving. Now, I state that as a verb not as a noun. Too often you hear, you hear about self-love, so you think, oh, well, I don't feel self-love, therefore I don't have it. But that's not how it works. So self-loving as an intentional act, mm. as an internal process, is maybe the closest thing we have to a panacea to emotional wounds. So if, if someone's said a cutting remark to us, then self-loving makes it hurt less. If someone wants nothing to do with us, our self-loving, again, makes it hurt less. If we are disappointed, then our self-loving makes it hurt less. This might be the closest thing to a panacea that we have. And maybe that's why so many religions that people seek comfort in have arrived at love or loving mm. kindness, how, however you phrase it, as a solution, almost a universal solution. One one of the problems, I think, with our, with our society is that we're not being taught where to look okay. to find happiness. We're not being taught where to look to find a, a sense of being worthy. We're taught to look outside ourselves. We're not taught to look inside ourselves. That's why I have a career at all. That's why that there are philosophers mm -hmm. and psychotherapists and hypnotherapists, in, in my case, who can provide some guidance for how to navigate your own thoughts and feelings, how to go through your inner world mm. and find that which you can't purchase at the shopping mall. Mm. One pattern I have noticed in at least my clients who've sought out help during a job search or when they're dating or when they've been broken up with is that when their, their sense of self-worth is tied up with the approval, acceptance and validation of, of another, so often they're left actually feeling empty on the inside, where they're worse off than if they never even just kind of like tried to love. So what I would suggest in, in many of these situations is that if you recognize your innate worth and value at the same time you recognize theirs, you are one, being an egalitarian, you're treating yourself as an equal, and two, even in a breakup scenario or a job loss scenario, both you and they can walk away with your heads held up high. Mm. Too often, zero-sum thinking has you believe that one person's got to lose and one person's <laughs> got to win. But even in a breakup scenario or a job loss scenario, I would suggest it is possible for you to recognize your future, your worth, your dignity and to keep it in mind as you walk away at the same time that you recognize their worth and their mm. dignity, then no matter what happens, it's tolerable. Whatever happens, it's bearable. With dignity, with dignity recognized, even adversity can be born. But I might even go a little bit further and say, if you have that self-love and self-esteem, that any 
a fault of yours is forgiven, although you don't necessarily, have, you, that doesn't mean that you relinquish responsibility, but is forgivable. And that any challenge that you face or any um, behavior that is persistent, you can say, well, with this self-love, it makes life better. It actually makes the process of living more enjoyable. It is extraordinarily draining to be stuck in grief. It's extraordinarily draining to be stuck in a loop of endless self-flagellation. When we're talking about all these things, in some ways what we're saying is that that is actually A, not necessary, and B, it's not, it's entirely unhypocritical and it's inclusive to count yourself as somebody that actually deserves and has rights to have a certain level of self-worth, self-esteem, and, and confidence that allows you to carry yourself through this world filled with challenges and come out of it going, okay, I am not a bad person, and okay, I can deal with this. It's a, it's, when you say it's an emotional panacea, I would even go further and say, it's probably the golden bullet for almost everything, for almost every way that you interact with the world. If you come at it from this confident, self-validating self-worth, you can actually deal very well with almost anything. It's not gonna make you stop feeling bad. It's just gonna allow you to move through it better and quicker. It's exactly why we try to instill this attitude in children. Mm. We are not spoiling them. We are not mollycoddling them. It actually produces a better, healthier, happier, more successful adult life mm. if one has self-esteem, if one has self-respect and self-love. And to the point of self-flagellation being draining, I would mm. even say that continued self-flagellation when you've already learned what you had to learn is cruel and unusual mm. in a way that we will not do even to convicted criminals. If we're saying that self-love, self-respect, and to not put yourself through cruel and unusual punishment, then the opposite of self-flagellation would actually be gratitude for what is, rather than mourning, resentment, or uh, guilt about what has been or is what, no what is no longer true or current. There's a lot of truths that you could pay attention to and many more falsehoods mm. you could pay attention to any given moment of every waking hour of your life. And too often we're looking at the ugly truths. Too often we're looking at ugly falsities. Gratitude is the intentional act of looking at the beautiful truths. And there's no self-deception in this. I think a lot of people might feel like it's self-deceiving if you're grateful when the world can be so awful. But I would suggest that it's just as self-deceiving to turn away from the beautiful truths to look at the ugly ones or worse, the, the ugly lies. When you are looking for it, you'll find the beauty in a tree. You'll find the humanity and the connection and the depth in the person who's bagging your groceries at the grocery store. If you're looking for it, mm. the mistake that often we make is we're not looking for it. We're not looking at it when we see it. And worse, that we're searching our minds for the ugly bits in life. You've heard me say before, it's not sophisticated to be cynical and negative. It is more sophisticated to, like the art critic or the music critic or the literary critic, to love beauty. Hmm. Thank you again for listening. Pascal and I are available through the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis as hypnotherapists. If you want to hear more of what we have to say, and if you want to hear it being spoken directly into your head, then please contact the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis at morpheusclinic.com.
heartwerephilosophy.com. At heart, we're practical philosophers. We like to think deeply. We like to think specifically about how one might be as happy of a person as one can be, given the modern world, given the modern times, given that in adulthood you've caught responsibilities that your childhood might not have prepared you for. So check us out. We're on YouTube, at Morpheus Hypnosis. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about how to take care of your physical body as well. And uh, we look forward to seeing your comments and we'll welcome you back in a couple of weeks time. Mm -hmm.